from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And by the power of your spirit, we pray that you would help us to see how Jesus intends to employ us for his glory and his kingdom here and now, even this week. For we ask in his name. Amen. It is a delight to be with you all uh, on this uh, chilly day, um, but the first Sunday after Epiphany. Uh, as you can see now already through the collect for today and from the gospel passage, the first Sunday after Epiphany is uh, the time where we particularly, one of the times in the year that we particularly remember the baptism of Jesus. Uh, and so the scripture reading there, the gospel reading from Mark, I, I love Mark's brevity. He's just so to the point, like uh, John the Baptist said Jesus would come, he'll baptize, and here he was, and he gets baptized. Uh, it, it, it's the, the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, and, and it may seem to you that the Christmas season has has gone on really, really long. Uh, maybe you have your decorations on, maybe on the 6th, on Epiphany, you took them down. We still have two live Christmas trees, unornamented, unlit in our apartment because our super has not given us the authority to take them outside. So <laughs> they sit and group and we wait. Uh, so it seems that Christmas is lingering longer. And, and, and you might think, well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, there's been a season. Christmas seems like a while ago. We're back to work and everything is still happening. But when you think about this in terms of the life of Jesus, the time between uh, his birth and his baptism, Luke tells us, is about 30 years. Most of his life has passed. In fact, you, you can look at the gospel reading. It says Mark chapter one, verse seven. He's seven verses in and we're already, we just skipped over 30 years. 30 years. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, with, as you recall from 
the Christmas season, uh, a questionable birth story, teenage mom, pre-marriage. Jesus, now this about 30-year-old man from the sticks, from a backwater town. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? In a remote region of the Roman Empire, no one really cares about Judah. It's, just, it's way over there. What in the world could one 30-year-old man from a backwater town in a distant region possibly do that would cause us 2,000 years later to commemorate his baptism? Well, we're told, right? We're told what he did. But not only are we told what Jesus did, but what Jesus did was foretold as well. The first scripture that was read for us on page nine of your uh, order of service is the one that I'll spend most of my time in today. This text from Isaiah chapter 42, which predates Jesus by hundreds of years. There's debate about how many hundreds of years, but there is no debate that it is hundreds of years before Jesus. In fact, there is a a scroll of the prophecy of Isaiah that you can see in a museum in Israel that dates at least 200 years before Jesus. Still there. Now, this particular prophecy, uh, the gospel writers, all of the gospel writers want us to understand, God himself wants us to understand that this prophecy is in view in the baptism of Jesus. Did you see the connection? What happens at the baptism? Jesus comes out of the water, right? They see the spirit descending on him. And what are the words of God? This is my son, my beloved one in whom I am well pleased. Look at this prophecy. How does it begin? I have put my spirit upon him. This is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Hundreds of years before Jesus. Now, let me set the context of this prophecy of Isaiah real quickly. Isaiah is a big book has 66 chapters. It's one of the longer books uh, in Holy Scripture. And the book breaks down into three large chunks. The first large chunk is 39 chapters. That's a big chunk. That chunk is, is primarily historical. It's Isaiah talking about his interactions with kings, the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel, the kings of other nations. And in that history, Uh, you find that the northern nation of Israel is wiped out during that time period. At the beginning, they're there. By chapter 39, they're gone. Judah remains. Jerusalem, its capital. But Israel is gone. And yet, in those 39 chapters, he's dealing with all these other nations as well, with all of these cryptic oracles about uh, places you've never heard of unless you've read the book of Isaiah. Okay? That's the first chunk of Isaiah. The last chunk of Isaiah is the last uh, 11 chapters, chapters 56 to 66. And that points to a glorious future. Okay. The first is a really tragic present. The last is a really glorious future ending in chapter 66 
with a new heaven and a new earth. Then there's this middle chunk, chapters 40 to 55. This chunk of the book is the bridge. How do we go from our, from our terrible present to this glorious future? Well, God tells us in this chunk. Now, I should say one other thing about this first part. There's an issue that keeps coming up as Isaiah is dealing with kings of Israel and Judah, particularly kings of Judah, but really all the kings and all the people. The issue that comes up over and over and over again is the issue of faith. Faith. I think that's the reason that uh, many scholars refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel, because it deals so much with faith. Towards the beginning, I think it's in chapter seven, you find Isaiah dealing with, uh, I think it's Ahaz. And he gives a clear word of prophecy to Ahaz about what he ought to do. And Ahaz doesn't believe him. And Isaiah says, if you will not believe, you will not stand. And towards the end of that first chunk, chapters 38 and 39, you see this great outpouring of faith from the faithful king Hezekiah that turns away the Assyrian army. And you say, finally, we have a king who will believe God. And then tragedy in chapter 39, where he is so full of himself over this great victory that he brings the Babylonians in to see all of his treasures, show off his wares. Look how great I am. And Isaiah says, what are you doing? And he predicts disaster. Those Babylonians are going to come clear everything out. And Hezekiah is relieved only that it's not going to happen in his lifetime. Tragic. Tragic. How then do we go from this muddled present, from Isaiah's perspective, marked by faithlessness amongst all of God's people, and especially God's leaders, to that glorious future in chapters 56 to 66? The answer is this middle chunk, chapters 40 to 55. And in this middle chunk, there are four songs. There's more than that, but there are four songs. All the songs are about the servant. Right there. You see that in the first verse? Behold my servant. That's the first time. This is the, fir- the beginning of the first servant song. What you have printed is the entire first servant song. The second one, if you want to look at this later, the second one is, begins in chapter 49, verse 1. The third one begins in chapter 50, verse 4. And the fourth servant song, you know. It's that great chapter, Isaiah 53. But I, the, the song itself, though, doesn't begin with Isaiah 53.1. The song begins a few verses earlier in chapter 52, verse 13, when God says, Behold, my servants will deal wisely. So wise that by the, a couple of verses later, he says, Kings will honor him. And Isaiah replies, chapter 53, verse 1, but Lord, who has believed our report about this servant? See, faith, faith. Now, I say that all the gospel writers intend for us to connect the baptism of Jesus with the first servant song. 
with these verses. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, God speaking, my chosen, in whom I, my, I, my soul delights. This is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit on him, right? The spirit descends on him like a dove. Okay. What? Why? For what purpose? Why? Why did God in the life of Jesus at his baptism, mark him out by the spirit and declare his pleasure in him? What was God's purpose? What would the servant do? God tells us he will bring forth justice. He will bring forth justice to the nations. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we are so honored that you are here. I mean, it, it is honestly incredibly noteworthy that you would join us with your questions, your investigation, your hard questions. But one of the questions that you may have brought in this morning, it's a question that probably all of us have dealt with it at some point. Does God not care about the injustice in this world? Does not God not care about the, the dozens of people killed in Kazakhstan this week? And here God is telling us, I do care. In fact, I've anointed someone to bring justice because we haven't been able to bring it about ourselves. Now, how does the servant bring justice? This is remarkable. He begins to tell us in verse two, the way he is going to bring justice to the nations is that he will not, oh, wait a second. I thought you were gonna say how we, he is going to do it. <laughs> you could circle it if you want in, in, your, in your program. How often the word not appears in the next three verses. It comes up four times. He tells us not, 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 right? He, he's, he's drawing a contrast. Well, not like this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What is that saying? He's not going to be beating his chest saying, I'm the man. I'm, I'm here to do it. Nope. Not like that. In fact, verse 3 carries on a bruised reed. He will not break. This is, this, this is metaphor, right? This is not saying that Jesus would never prune a plant. Okay, that's not what this is saying. He's talking about people. The wounded. The bruised. The traumatized. He will never look at such a person and just be done with them. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Lots of candles at Christmas time. I love it, right? My kids, all, we have five kids. So we have lots of people who want to light the candle and then who want to extinguish the candle, right? And you've seen candles that are just about to go out, right? And you go, right? 
Do you know people like that? They're on their last legs. Jesus never looks at one and goes, never. The beauty of this season of Epiphany is that we think a lot about the life of Jesus between now uh, and, and Ash Wednesday. We think a lot about Jesus's life and you can see these situations, right? Where Jesus was precisely this, and here's the word I wanna put out here, he was precisely this gentle. How does he bring forth justice? With gentleness. That, that, this is the positive statement of these knots. He brings justice with gentleness. Whether it's a leper or a Samaritan, whether it's a Pharisee who would come only by night, whether it was a prostitute, gentleness. But that's not all, because the end of verse three says that he will faithfully bring forth justice. So here's a second characteristic of Jesus's justice, gentleness one, faithfulness two. That is, he brings justice with truth. And friends, we constantly pit these two against each other. Either we will be compassionate or we will be truthful. Either we are going to uh, lean in towards those faintly burning wicks and the marginalized, or we are just going to tell them the truth. Jesus did not bend any of God's laws in order to exercise gentleness. I mean, think about, think about John 5, right? The lame man who has no one to help him. And Jesus comes and heals him. Or think about the man born blind on the Sabbath day. And people are like, oh, 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 you're breaking the law. No, 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 Jesus says, you don't understand the law. I will bring justice, but I will do it faithful to my God, faithful to his law, not bending anything that God has said in order to demonstrate his justice is both gentle and faithful. But that's not all. If you go down to verse seven, you see at least three more characteristics of his justice. Uh, in verse seven, you, well, Verses five through nine, you have the Lord first was talking about the servant, now talking to the servant. And he says in verse six, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the, uh, for the nations. Two, and here's the first one, to open the eyes that are blind. The first one in this verse, the third one overall, how, how does he bring forth justice with benevolence? That's not quite the right word, but there's not a good word for healingness. <laughs> so if you, get, you have a better word for healingness, I'll take it. But benevolence is the word I'm going with right now. That is, he meets people precisely where they are. And whatever distress they're in, and he restores them, which is part of justice, this restorative aspect that God created you to see. So I will make you see. Jesus can do that. In fact, study the scriptures, lots of miracles, various parts of the Bible. Nobody opens the eyes of the blind, only one. This is a messianic miracle. 
Not only that, he goes on to say that he brings out the prisoners from the dungeon. How does he bring forth justice? He does it with deliverance. He releases people from bondage. The bondage of their past. The bondage of religious or political oppression. He delivers them. Moreover, the verse goes on to say that he brings from the prison those who sit in darkness. His work is not just on the religious and political plane, but goes into our hearts, into our darkness where we sit, and he brings forgiveness. Forgiveness. How would Jesus, how would Jesus bring forth justice with gentleness, with faithfulness, with benevolence, with deliverance, with forgiveness? And then there's this. Can I throw one more on the list as long as I've got a long list going? <laughs> Throughout these verses, you see this repeated word. Nations. Right? All the way at the beginning. Some of you, in your heart, you quibbled with me because I didn't finish the sentence. He will bring forth justice. It's because I wanted to save it for this moment, right? It feels better now, right? He will bring justice, not just to Judah, not just to Israel, not just for the Davidic kingdom. He will bring justice to the nations. Verse six, I give you as a covenant for the people, yes, but a light for the nations. That brings up the sixth way that he brings forth justice. He does it with comprehensiveness. Everywhere. Everywhere. As Isaac Watts famously put it in the song we love to sing, as far as the curse is found. That's where he brings forth justice. So friends, what do you see when you read the Gospels in these coming weeks? What do you see in the life of Jesus after his baptism, I'd like to suggest to you that what you see is the just one doing justice. The just one bringing forth justice. And not just this solemn, wear a robe and a powdered wig. All right, babble, babble, babble. You know, I declare you guilty. Not just justice, but justice that brings joy. Blind people can see their family members. Lepers can go home. The abused and marginalized have a family. And a bunch of fishermen take center stage. Go figure. Who is this Jesus? He's the just one. He's the servant doing justice and bringing joy. I, I, I just can't get the words of, I think it's Psalm 84 or 86 out of my mind where it, where it talks about going through the Valley of Baca, which is a reference to a dry place or maybe even the, the Valley of Weeping, going through the Valley of Baca and making it, turning it into springs of joy. That is fulfilled in Jesus. I mean, all these stories, I've been talking on the, the justice side of this, but don't pit justice and joy against one another. 
all of these things he's doing with gentleness and faithfulness and benevolence and deliverance and forgiveness and comprehensiveness is turning all of those places into a place of joy. That's what you read about Jesus in this season, beginning with his baptism and going through his earthly ministry. He brings justice and joy. But friends, that's not what everybody saw when they saw that. Sure, the the lepers were thrilled. The blind rejoiced. But both the religious authorities and the political authorities saw Jesus, the just one doing justice, as a threat to their primary place of power and authority in people's lives. You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? Well, this man, Jesus, healed me, and he said, take up my mat and walk. Who is this Jesus? And friends, what we see and what we'll celebrate in a few weeks, what we'll commemorate in Holy Week, is that the very reason Jesus went to the cross is because is that he was gentle. We don't want those people restored to society. They're a threat to us. It's because he acted with faithfulness when the religious leaders were like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You, you, you don't have a right to say that. You don't have a right to liberate people like that. His forgiving notorious people and his doing it for a Samaritan, for a Syrophoenician woman. A woman. Jesus was crucified for these very reasons. And remarkably, in the hours of his trial, of his death, the blessings that we just recounted in verses 2 and 3 and 7 were turned on its head in the person of Jesus. But Jesus became the one to sit in darkness, awaiting his trial before the political authorities. Where Jesus was the one who sat in the dungeon imprisoned, where Jesus was blinded, not able to see those he loved most, his family sent away from them, where Jesus was the faintly burning wick that the authorities snuffed out, where Jesus was bruised and then broken. And finally, where Jesus on the cross cried aloud and lifted up his voice and made it heard in the street when he said that this is not just ordinary suffering. This is my God. Why have you forsaken me? See, a lot of us in talking about justice, honestly, We'd like to do justice from a distance. And, you know, we can't be involved in everything. So there's something fine about that. But we'd like to keep our nice, clean, neat lives over here. And then maybe send a check. 
just someone doing the dirty work over there. Whether or not that's all right or wrong, like I say, it's, it's fine at some level where we are, we are finite beings. That's not the way Jesus did this. Jesus didn't just look down from heaven and say, oh, what a mess. I'll send a check to street to street. <laughs> Clint, you handle it, man. I believe in you. He entered it. So we just celebrated. But even while he was here, he didn't remain at a distance. And this is the wonder to me of this passage, that when those blessings of verses two, three, and seven were flipped on Jesus, we find in that very moment, Jesus is bringing forth justice one more way. He's doing it vicariously. where he steps in the shoes of the bruised reed. He knows what it's like. He steps into the shoes of the faintly burning wick. He knows what it's like. He's experienced it. He knows what it's like to go into the darkness. He sat there and he went further than you or I ever will have to go. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And by means of this cross, God fulfilled that very promise in verse six that Jesus himself would be the covenant. Not just a word like he gave to Abraham or David, so that's amazing enough. Not just stone tablets that he gave to Moses, which I'm sure all of us would love to see sometime. No, you will be the covenant. And on the night of his betrayal, what did he say to his friends? This cup is the blood of the new covenant in my blood, vicariously. See, friends, in, even in his death, Jesus was bringing forth justice. He did it through his vicarious life because, frankly, our lives are not characterized by gentleness. We bend God's law all the time to get away with whatever we want. How interested am I in delivering people or forgiving them? Mm. Okay, now we're meddling. We were all just with family, right? All of us spent time with family members. Like, I'm not going to forget what that person said. I don't care what they say. See, friends, Jesus lived the life that you and I have failed to live. Then he died the death that we should have died because we're the ones, we're the ones who act with injustice, not him. And yet he on the cross bore everything we deserved so that we could be set free. And then, friends, as we'll celebrate on Easter, Jesus rose from the dead and then sent his spirit to unite people like us to himself so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failure to be gentle with your kids. He doesn't see your, your bending of God's law. When God looks at you, he sees all the merit and beauty and righteousness of Jesus. You say, that's not fair. You're right. That's why it's called grace. And now Jesus is still fulfilling the promise of this passage. 
And would you look at it one last time? Verse four says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. You're like, wait a second. I mean, there's still injustice in the world, right? Yes, there is. And Christians of all people should not bury our heads in the sand over it. Jesus didn't. Why should we? But I love this last line of verse four. And the coastlands wait for his law. Just for one last sec. Could you put yourself back in Isaiah's time and place? Right? Even if you've never been to Israel. There he is. Right? What does he see? There's land. And then there's the Mediterranean. Right? If you have a lot of courage, you get in a boat and you go out there into the great unknown. No satellite imagery to show the boot of Italy out there. Okay? You're just, I heard there's a place called Spain. Right? And if you had a lot of money and an insane amount of courage, even back in Isaiah's day, you take that boat past Spain. And what do you find on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean? You say, you find us. But what would he have found? What would they have found? They would have found coastlines that would become New York City and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia and Boston or whatever. See what verse 4 is promising? Verse 4 is promising that Jesus will not grow faint or be discouraged until people way out there on the coastlands are hoping, putting their hope in the servant's Torah, servant's instruction. You know what that means? <laughs> us being here today, us being here today is a fulfillment of this very prophecy. And no, justice hasn't come, but Jesus isn't discouraged yet. He hasn't grown faint yet. He's a whole lot more patient than we are, and he will not fail. The remarkable thing is that as we follow in Jesus' steps, the Spirit empowers us to be his agents for justice and for joy. You say, what does that mean? Uh-oh, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to get involved in this cause and not that cause and whatever? Okay. What does it mean? It means this week, walk with gentleness and faithfulness and benevolence and deliverance. Yes, forgiveness and comprehensiveness and vicariousness, which actually is a word. I had to look it up this week. <laughs> Can I use this word? Okay, it is a word. Dictionary.com told me it is. Which means don't just hand money to someone who's in need or hand a, a bottle of cold water or volunteer to serve somewhere, but put yourself in their place and see life from their eyes for a little while. See, the Spirit empowers you to be that kind of agent. Nothing, no one and nothing else could make people like us an agent for justice and joy like that. So that's the path of our Savior. He walked it because we haven't. And now by his Spirit, by his grace, we get to follow in his steps. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.